Hello all, this is producer Ryan Kulik, and I wanted to welcome you to this very special episode of High Heels and Politics, and also give you an update on a few things of where we're going here. First off, I want to thank you. I want to thank Marianne. I want to thank Lindsay. This has been the most successful year we've ever had, and it's we have a great audience base. We are reaching tons of people, not just here in Southwest Ohio, but all over the Buckeye State even beyond, and in multiple countries. We have interviews that really, really interest people, and that is a credit, again, to Marianne, again, to Lindsay, and it's a it's a credit to you guys, the audience, who have come in and told us what you've liked and what we need to get better at. Moving into the new year, High Heels and Politics is going to be going on a very aggressive marketing front. We're going to be, in 2023, doing series on a lot of things, such as political corruption in the state of Ohio, the satanic panic of the early 1980s, and how it relates to Procter & Gamble, which is a fascinating, fascinating story. But in order to do all that, we need resources. So I encourage you, if you are a business that you want to advertise, I can give you all the information on the audience and where we are here at High Hills and Politics, one of the most listened to podcasts in the entire state of Ohio and Cincinnati region. And you can go to highheelsandpolitics.com to look at that information. If you're a fan of the show and you want to help us out, I encourage you to go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Dot com. Look for High Heels and Politics, and you, it's very simple. You can sign up five bucks a month, and it helps helps keep keep the lights on and uh, keep us going here into the new year. So again, I want to thank you. I want to thank Marianne. I want to thank Lindsay. I want to thank the entire team that we've had working here at High Heels and Politics to make this a successful year. And please, please enjoy the interview. Welcome to High Heels and Politics, the podcast where we talk with the leaders of Ohio and beyond. And now, your host, Marianne Christie. Hi, good morning. I want to welcome our listeners as well as our visitor today on the show. My name is Lindsay Cole, and I am currently interviewing Sam Quinone. Can I say, I'm sorry, there's many pronunciations of my last name. That's not a wrong one. I use Quinones. 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 K-I-N-Y-O-N-E-S-S. Think of it that way. Yes. There you go. Okay. Good morning to our listeners. I am currently sitting on Zoom right now with the famous author of Dreamland and The Least of Us, which is a 2021 new edition. I wouldn't do it justice when I introduce you. So Sam, if you could do the due diligence that you deserve to our listeners to let you know, let them know. Yes, my name is Sam Quinones. I'm a journalist, reporter, writer, author, written a lot about Mexico, lived for 10 years in Mexico, been doing this 35 years, worked also after that 10 years for the Los Angeles Times, and I'm now a freelance writer, writing all kinds of stuff. But mostly what I've written in the last 10 years is the two books about our addiction epidemic nationwide. First book was Dreamland, as you said, which is about the opioid epidemic and pain pills and heroin and all that. And then the latest book is about the switch in particularly in Mexican trafficking world to away from plant-based drugs and towards synthetic chemical only drugs, primarily fentanyl and methamphetamine. That's the least of us. True Tales of American Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. And both of them really try to chart the path as a country we've taken towards this very serious problem of addiction that is now far more pronounced than it's ever been in our, and deadly than it's ever been in our history. I want to thank you for joining me this morning. I had read your book. It's been, gosh, 
right when it was first published in 2015. And to be honest, it really, I wouldn't say it changed my life, but it certainly did open up a different avenue for me when looking at my own hometown of Portsmouth, Ohio. Grew up there. And it's interesting because as you, as I was reading the book, I was going through all of the, my past history and my small moments in childhood and going to didn't grow up going to dreamland, but I did go to dreamland for their swim dances. They had these infamous swim dances on Friday. And so every time I get the opportunity to talk to someone about my hometown, my people is what I call them and my roots, I always bring up your book because I think it's such a important factor of a crossroads of where we are as a country today, even in 2022, going into 2023, but also where we've come from. I grew up there. I was born in 1980. And so it's interesting to look at the evolution of where we've come in our society and looking just back at the history, the rich history that I had and I know my parents grew up with. My grandmother is still living. She's 103, still living in (laughs) Wheelersburg, which is a county outside of... Been there too. It's interesting because when I read your book, I actually was a sales representative for Pfizer and I was competing you could call it competing with the Purdue representative. So all of these names that you're mentioning, the Dr. Proctors of the world and the pill mills and the pain clinics, I was actually calling on professionally. And so as I was reading your book, and I hope that our listeners get to, if they haven't read your book yet, that they get to read your book and they go and they do their due diligence because living through that process from and being a sales rep from 2003 to 2006 in the Portsmouth area and Chillicothe area, I saw the tides changing in my hometown. And it, honestly, looking at it today, it's irrecognizable. Once a thriving shoelace factory in the center of a beacon like Dreamland was, it is now a $30 million rehab facility. It's interesting to look at my hometown through your eyes And I just would love for you to help me understand why you chose Portsmouth, Ohio, and give me the whole background about that. Sure. It's important to understand for your listeners that Dreamland was a swimming pool, the size of the grounds of which were about the size of a football field, enormous thing. And it was a swimming pool in the town of Portsmouth, Ohio, your hometown, that's on the Ohio River, right across from Kentucky in Southern Ohio, was once a bustling, thriving industrial town with steel of mill, with shoe manufacturers and shoelace manufacturers, as you say, a very active commercial downtown, a largely working class to middle class town of about 50,000 people. Dreamland, this beautiful, luscious swimming pool that everybody who lived there remembers during those years, was really like the town square. It was a place where people came together, is where you grew up in public, under the watchful eyes of not just your parents, but many parents who would correct you if you were out of line. The last thing you ever wanted to do was get out of line at Dreamland Pool because you got might get Band, and that's where the social life was from about May to October. It was an absolutely essential thing for the that social life of that town. They did have those dances on Friday nights. I began to go to to Portsmouth because I heard through several sources that it was where the pill mill business model 
became a big uh, was invented essentially the pill mill pill mills being essentially pain management clinics in name but really what they were was an opportunity for doctors who were now sliding into corruption frankly of just prescribing endless amounts of these pills for cash so every prescription was 200 250 cash and the lines out the door every day were long but this was a time much after the heyday of Portsmouth, which began to fall apart as a town with the Rust Belt phenomenon that took place in the late 70s into the 80s, certainly. The steel mill left, the uh, Walmart essentially sucked up all those commercial, locally owned small business people, small business, small businesses on Main Street. Half the population leaves. The town essentially is reduced to about 25,000. And about 10 years into this economic devastation, the Dreamland pool closes and is dug up and is turned into what is now a strip mall, Chinese restaurant, a small market, a yogurt shop. Last I was there, that's what we're there. Definitely not the great soul of the community that the swimming pool was. And a few years after that, just stripped of what kept, helped kept the town together, come the opioids, the pain pills, the ma- massive marketing, the very aggressive marketing, as you say, by Purdue Pharma and other companies promoting the use of narcotic painkillers, opioid painkillers, as the solution to almost all pain. And it was like a, a, a the arrival of a, a cloud of locusts. The both. The sales reps were extraordinarily aggressive. Never before had there been such sales reps. In fact, drug sales reps for many years had been very kind of boring. It was really because you were trying to, you lived in the community. You were part of the community. You wanted doctors to trust you. Yes. You did not want to, but with the new sales force that came in, it was like, here today, gone in nine months to another territory and very aggressive promotion, very constant visitations, all this kind of stuff. And you began to see the arrival, the emergence of the pill mill during these years. And these were doctors who may well have started out with the best of intentions, but inundated with months to, to use prescription painkillers far more aggressively. And also, it bears, bears saying, that a very intense pressure on the part of patients. Yes. Who I need my pills, doc. And the idea that you a doctor's appointment wasn't really an appointment if you didn't leave without a prescription. If you left yes. without a prescription, it, it needed to have that prescription. That was part of why you you went and there was a, a readjusting of expectations really in the part of doctors and also on the part of health consumers, us Americans, yes. that that you needed to have that doctors would provide miracle cures in a sense that when doctors would say, you don't need these pills, what you need is to get in shape, is to eat better, walk more, swim, get lots of exercise and take accountability for your own wellness. Americans in general pushed back. That was also part of this. I really came to believe that pushed back against this idea like, no doc, you fix me, give me my miracle cure. And this began the pill mill idea where you're just a doctor's there just to dispense prescriptions with almost no pain analysis or diagnosis or thought about how you might address this in a different way. It was just about pills. 
That began in Portsmouth, Ohio. Dr. Proctor, David Proctor, who is now dead, but as you mentioned, he was really the first one. Then he begins to farm out his practice to all kinds of really by then scandalous doctors who came from all over the country, many with addiction problems of their own. They then start up their own pain clinics. He was known as the Ray, the Roy, what is it, the Roy Croc, Ray Croc of of the pain medicine, referring to the guy who made McDonald's into an enormous franchise. And so all of this happened in Portsmouth first. And that's why I went there. I really went there to tell that story. And it's definitely a story I could tell. And I would sit in the, there was a sober clubhouse by the time I arrived, which is 2013 for the first time, 13 and 14. In fact, I was planning on going there twice for about three days each. Okay. And then I realized as I got there, that I really needed to dig down much deeper into Portsmouth, Ohio. And I ended up going six times each time for about five to seven, for a week, roughly each time. But I learned about the most scandalous parts of this story from just sitting in the sober clubhouse and people would come who were in recovery from their pill addiction and they would sit in the sober clubhouse. It's right there on 52 near, yeah. uh, what's the pizzeria? Giovanni's Pizzeria? There's a Giovanni's, yes. Giovanni's right there, not too far from there, like a block or two away. And I would listen to their stories and I would talk and talk for hours at a time, sometimes three, four hours a day, listen to the war stories of going to guys who would go to these doctors. And it was the most shameful thing sometimes, a complete corruption of what a pill, a pain management clinic ought to be somewhere held in houses with waiting chairs outside in the yard. There was no attempt to really turn this into a real pain management clinic where you're given actual opportunities to treat your pain. Nobody wanted that. The doctor didn't want that. The patients didn't want that. But it all takes place against the backdrop of a hollowing out of the town of Portsmouth, Ohio. Jobs, people, places for seeing to see each other after dreamland closes the only place you really were able to see other people is at walmart hey how you doing as you're passing and and just so you know that's still the case today back there for thanksgiving and that's still the the very much the same thing or friday night lights which is a football game or a basketball game that's friday night i would say though that one of the we can talk about this later but One of the beautiful things about Portsmouth, though, is that is also changing, too. They now have, I took to be one of the great moments in Portsmouth's rebirth to some to the degree that it's happening. And I think it's an important story, as important as the decline, is that you now have two cafes, outdoor cafes, where people can meet. And I take out independent outdoor, independent cafes to be really a sign of economic resurgence. I'm not talking about the Starbucks by the interstate. I'm talking about someplace in town where people come together. So you have the Lofts Cafe and you have, oh, the other one over in the Boney Fiddle area. I can't remember its name. They're going to hit Market Street. There you go. That one. And these are great things. These are masquerading as small cafes. But they're really a place for people to come together, do work together. Economic vitality is born in many times in these small cafes. There's a whole bunch of other signs of resurgence that we could talk about in Portsmouth, maybe get to later. But when I was there, I got there, I spent a lot of time there in 2013 and 14. And when the first time I arrived in Portsmouth, I saw none of that. It was very much a scary place, wondering if this was really my country. 
I got lost. I got lost on Portsmouth's east side the first day. And I was wandering around, driving around going, oh, my God, where the hell am I? Saw people in cars who were clearly high, almost zombies, it felt to me. I saw this town with the eyes of a newcomer thinking, oh, my God, this is horrible. I would say that as time passed and as I spent more and more time there, I ended up spending like close, to, I would say somewhere close to certainly six weeks, maybe two months there, eventually you know, in total, I began to see the resurgence, the rebirth of the town. But yeah. the first time I was there was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. And I had several people who were ex- especially important in explaining the town to me. One was Lisa Roberts public at the public city's public health department. She's very thoughtful, very articulate, smart lady. Ed Hughes, too, who is at the counseling center, now retired. He was fantastic. There's a bunch of folks who really were able to explain Portsmouth in the context of a much larger phenomenon of this massive promotion of pain pills, the revolution in in pain in opioids. The opioid revolution in pain management in America is generally how I see that, where you find people who are just doctors and pharma companies who are promoting the hell out of these pills, saying these are the new miracle cures for all our pain, and no one will get addicted. If you're a pain patient, you're in pain, you will not get addicted. Of course, that was nonsense. That was perfect marketing, right? You can take a pill, you can feel better instantly. And then you can, all the pain and everything is gone. And it's interesting to hear that from your perspective, because being in that selling environment and being ultra competitive in that environment for pain management, like you were talking about, you were drawing a really good visual. I can tell you even just being in that environment, working there, driving around, trying to track down these pill mills, because I would get data within my computer system to go and find these people, talk to these physicians, because it's interesting. I think what a lot of our listeners don't understand is how when we talk about healthcare and looking at our how why the system worked the way it did is there were no checks and balances. We had physicians who were coming in and they were setting up these clinics, you're, you're 100% correct, in homes. And they would write these prescriptions for cash And I would pull into a parking lot. I would see long lines, 25 cars with entire families sitting in them for hours at a time. And then I would leave at the end of the day and go to drive to my apartment in Chillicothe and see them still sitting there off of Highway 23 in these random homes, still after six and seven o'clock at night, waiting on their prescriptions. And what a lot of people don't understand is this became not only a sense of a getting rid of your pain and feeling better, but it was also a business on that side because Ohio Medicaid was allowing these prescriptions to be filled. And then it became a business for these people because if they did, it was $10 a milligram. So seeing all of this, I did not, I had an, a non-opioid. I had just an anti-inflammatory. So I wasn't even in the ballpark of winning any awards trying to compete with this. And I was not on Ohio Medicaid. It was the perfect storm, Sam. Right. No, there's absolutely what was going on was all these pressures being yes. put on doctors. And so you had the drug companies, pain specialists were saying, this is how we need to treat pain from now on. So a primary care doc, a family doc who really didn't know much about 
pain management would say, okay, this is how you do it in medicine. You learn from the experts. The experts are saying this is the way we do it now. That's mm -hmm. weird because it's contrary. When I learned in medicine is you stay away from opioids, except for in certain very defined, defined limits and times like end-of-life care, post-surgical care for a couple of days, three days, Hospice. whatever. Yes, absolutely. Hospice, yes, all that. But yes. now it became almost anything, chronic pain and anybody, any injury. So all of a sudden, football becomes a gateway to heroin addiction because kids are provided these pills in enormous amounts, get addicted to those pills, can't afford them eventually because the doctor may cut them off or something like that. And they switch to the street, buying them on the street, which is a dollar a milligram. You can't afford that if you're doing 200 milligrams a day. And so eventually people began to switch to heroin. This began to happen by the time I was onto this story, this was happening all over the country. Important part of all this Lindsay, I think is that it was a national story. What was happening in Portsmouth was a, a snapshot, a small snapshot. This was not just Portsmouth. This was everywhere. Yeah. This was suburban Indianapolis. This was Portland, Reno, all over the Southwest, all over the South. It was everywhere because it was doctors as a class, as a group, were badgered, convinced, pushed, cajoled. Some went very willingly into this new prescribing paradigm. Others went kicking and screaming. Some never really did. But whatever the case, you saw doctors nationwide get with the program beginning in the mid-90s. And certainly by the 2000s, you began to see this as like taught in medical school is how do you deal with pain? Endless amounts of opioids for whatever. I was just speaking with a doctor here in Tennessee where I'm living now. And the numbers of cases, one, one woman we both know was given a Vicodin for a foot rash, for goodness sakes, a foot rash. There's no, nobody has any business prescribing anything like an opioid for a foot rash, but that was 20 years ago. That's how people were thinking. It bears mentioning too, that some people definitely helped. I think particularly people in chronic pain, older people in the 70s or 80s with arthritis definitely helped by this, but there was a huge collateral damage nationwide to this. It created an enormous new population of opioid-addicted Americans that then became eventually a sum of those, and I would say a significant number, not sure how many in ever, but became a market for heroin coming up from Mexico. Right. Eventually, that's what happened. You wrote this book in 2015, and now you have a follow-up <laughs> book and wrote The Least of Us in 2021. Right before we got on this podcast, we were discussing just a mutual friend, one that I grew up with. He was on, I did a two-part series with Dale King talking about the opioid crises. And you had discussed, and you and I were discussing, the changing of what Portsmouth looks like now. And I attribute a lot of that to people my age, late 30s, early 40s, who are living there, maybe grew up there, most likely yes. grew up there. That sense of community is certainly coming back. The tides are changing. And I attribute that to a lot of people like Dale and so many people who want to bring Portsmouth, Ohio back. With that being said, as Portsmouth is slowly rising and redefining who or what that community looks like, you write this book, The Least of Us. You feature Dale in the last chapter, you said, of this book. And now we've seen a new rise of opioid addiction from a different perspective. And to be honest, Sam, when I was talking to Dale about how far we've come, we're still losing people hundreds sure. and the numbers are still there. So even though we are 
have a totally different idea and concept of opioids and the addiction. We can look at, obviously, COVID wasn't helpful, but we're Mm -hmm. in 2022 and we've looked at now, of course, J.D. Vance, Hillbilly Elegy, you know, that's his background. He's drawn a huge platform for opioid addiction and just his background. He's now our Ohio U.S. Senator. We're still, even though we've come so far, we are still in a sort of the same place sure. that we were when we wrote the book. I would say we're both better off and worse off than we're when I wrote the book. And I'll say this, uh, just charting back a little bit. When I wrote Dreamland, other than in Portsmouth, I was having a horrible time finding families with addicted loved ones who wanted to talk publicly about that. That was a great concern to me. I did not realize that I would encounter that when I started the book. I thought everybody would be happy to talk about it. And that's not the case. People were mortified. They were ashamed at how their loved one, their kid, their spouse, their grandparents sometimes got strung out on this stuff and then switched to heroin and then relapsed and died and all this different stuff. The stigma was very real. And when you come It was very real. Think about it. There's a lot of small towns, communities that sort of make up that Portsmouth area. And where I come from, you don't talk about your business outside of the home and you don't want other people because that's you're sharing your dirty laundry. That just wasn't something you discussed. No. And I think that what happened was that allowed that conspiracy of silence that was not just in your area. It was nationwide. I was traveling to many towns across the country and I didn't nobody. I could find very few families who wanted to talk about this publicly. That kind of silence allowed it to spread further. Because nobody knew what to do once their loved one got addicted to these pills. And so they suffered in silence. And then when the person would die, it would be like a lifetime of just agony and misery because you couldn't talk about it. You didn't know what happened, really. You'd look back and go, what just happened to my life, to our family life? As a reporter, I thought this was very alarming because the only way you are able to really tell the story is through the people who can tell it most poignantly. And that is family members. And I couldn't, I was, I found five, I found five, that's all. And it was just, think of thousands and thousands of families affected. What happened though, after Dreamland comes out was a stunning thing for us in my house, because I told my wife, we, this is never, this book's never going to sell. No one wants to talk about this. Politicians aren't really aware. The media covers it in a very haphazard manner. And so I'm going to be on to writing another book within six months. And what began to happen, though, comes out in 2015, April 2015, and then in paperback in 2016, I began to see this just gradual emergence of awareness. All those families who are in darkness, more and more of them with every year, step into the light, begin to start telling their story. I could not believe what I was seeing. There were three lawsuits. When I finished Dreamland, There were three lawsuits against drug companies at that time when I turned in my manuscript. Within a couple of years, I think maybe two, maybe three years, there were 2,600. You're talking about tribes, cities, counties, and then eventually attorneys general. And the attorneys general come with subpoena power and very experienced investigators and attorneys who are used to prosecuting consumer cases. And so you begin to see every attorney general in America do this. And all of a sudden, you begin to see all this new information that I, as a lowly, independent, lonely, freelance writer, could never have gotten access to. And that was by 2018, 19, you're seeing absolutely. But I was then asked to give all these speeches all over. I came to Portsmouth again. I spoke in Chillicothe. 
I spoke in Columbus, but also Wisconsin and Hawaii and Vermont and Nevada, et cetera, all over the country. And that's where you I began to- them a voice, Sam. You empowered them. You wrote their story down in words and you allowed them the ability to step out and say, this is my story, but there are millions yeah. of stories just like yours. It was I think so many people- didn't die in vain. Yeah, I think so many people felt so alone until then. They felt like we're the only one in 10 mile radius. And what they come to understand is- there's probably five families like us in the church that I go to, or there's three more on my street. You know what I mean? It's It was that widespread. So what ends up happening because of all this new energy, I consider that to be one of the great political, grassroots political movements of our time, except for it's never recognized as such because it's not organized. There's no union. There's no press secretary. There's no president of the association. It's just people coming out. What ends up happening is more and more you begin to see politicians take notice, budgets change priorities. You begin to see new policies and you begin to see these lawsuits. And that means that by 2019, we are seeing a totally different energy. When I wrote Dreamland, the subtitle to the book was a barometer of this. The subtitle of the book was the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. I didn't use opioid because no one knew what an opioid, if you weren't involved in medicine, you had no idea what I was talking about. So I put opiate because people know what that is. But now, of course, everybody knows how to pronounce the word naloxone. And this was, that was not the case. Now you're, you began to see this total rethinking of priorities. You begin to think all kinds of new things were now considered to be acceptable, politically acceptable people in red areas proposing criminal justice reform, which would never have been possible no. 10 years earlier. That was just completely impossible to imagine. And believable change. Then, well, you see it from an addiction level. Just looking yeah. at addiction and where, like you were saying, no one, you could only get five families. We look at mental health now and it, you change the game, Sam. Yeah. We look at mental health and COVID allowed that as well. But just looking at addiction, and saying, this is something that every single person can be affected by and has in some way been affected by it. You changed that. Thank you. It may have had a lot to do with it. I I know that I can tell you this. This is what I can say. There was one way that this epidemic was viewed before my book was published. And it was before Dreamland. And there was a totally different way that developed after Dreamland. And I know that because I lived it firsthand. I lived it Every day, literally almost every day, trying to find new people to talk to who wouldn't want to talk. And then later, it's like I was meeting people at every place I spoke. I remember there was about a two-year period. I remember meeting almost every place I spoke. I would meet somebody who would come up and tell me his or her story. And I thought to myself, damn, if I'd known that person when I was writing Dreamland, I'd have put them in the book because it's such a powerful story. But I wasn't me. Nobody wanted to tell that story back then. Hello all, this is producer Ryan Kulik again. I wanted to put a little bit of a break in here before we go on to the second part of the interview with Lindsay and Sam. I wanted to say on top of us doing a big marketing push and really pushing high heels in politics as a place where you can advertise your business, reach your customers, or just come in and give support for a show that that you love, we're doing some pretty big growth in the new year. I'm working with Lindsay on We've got some new theme music, some new stuff coming her way. We're going to continue these great interviews with High Heels and Politics. I talked about the series we're going to do. I need your help. 
we currently right now are looking for hosts. And this is an excellent opportunity. You don't need to do anything but sit down and talk. We have all the equipment. We can record this these things anywhere. We've recorded in hotel lobbies. We recorded this one completely over Zoom. We've recorded in restaurants, in bars, at Mad Korea, places all over the place. So I'm looking for hosts. I'm looking for people because we have a few shows coming up to talk about a variety of different things. So if you're looking for a platform, you're looking for something to help get your name out, or if you're a, an aspiring comedian, an aspiring actor, anything like that, actress, come in and go to High Heels in Politics, contact me, Ryan Kulik, or you can reach me directly at area code 513-600-8077. Now let's get to the second half of the conversation. Now you have book number two, The Least of Us. Right. And you said in some instances we're better and some instances we're worse. And I would say we're better because of this emergence into the light of all these people now telling their stories, families, and that has created a brand new awareness that did not exist. The way in which we are worse is that that the source of the supply has changed from doctors and drug companies to the Mexican trafficking world and this has also t- happened at a very t- very time when the Mexican trafficking world has done its own evolution away from plant-based drugs and towards synthetics, which are drugs made only with chemicals. And of course, the two most important of those, perhaps really the only ones we're talking about, is fentanyl and methamphetamine. They are not so easily brought into line as a wayward doctor. A wayward doctor can very easily be prosecuted. A lot of people live in terror. Yeah. Doctors live in terror of being prosecuted. They're very quickly to, quick to change, probably change too much. Went yeah. from prescribing all kinds of pills to none at all. And I think that's a mistake too, because these pills have very important role in the in making the lives better for a lot of but people. Used properly in the right and the appropriate setting for the right indications. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And we're not given endless refills based on a hunch. Oh, sure. Well, come on in. And, you know. and just so you know. And you can attribute this, the Ohio laws, and I'm sure other state laws have changed because of you and your book. And there are pill counts now that are in effect. If you go to CVS, you can't get another prescription at Rite Aid. And then you can't go to Walmart and there's days and there's limits and there's amounts and whether or not people agree with that or not. There is now a system in place that we have that we didn't have before. All of that has happened in the last few years. Some states coming much sooner, some states coming into it around then. But you're absolutely right. You're seeing a whole bunch of new policies and new budget. And now all this money dislodged from various companies like Purdue, like Walmart and Walgreens and CVS, the drug distributors, which are, I'm in Tennessee, they stand to to get close to, eventually close to a billion dollars. I can tell you when I was Walking around the bottoms of Lucasville in 2013, I thought to myself, there is no chance that these companies will ever be held to account because I was looking around at the bottoms of Lucasville, which is a place of lots of trailer homes, cars up on blocks and everything. And I was thinking, these folks have no voice. They would make lousy plaintiffs. They've already ripped off their child's Christmas presents, gone to jail, done this, done that. And there's no way that there's ever going to be plaintiffs sympathetic enough to allow a jury to to find in the favor of them instead of the companies. There's just too much money, too much power. And these folks are voiceless. And now 
I remember thinking about that, that those times in, in the bottoms of Lucasville and the east side of Portsmouth when I began to see these multi-billion dollar settlements. I just couldn't believe how much money, because I never, definitely never imagined this would ever happen. The problem is now that we have that that the underworld in Mexico has taken over the supply and the drugs that they are making, again, making, not growing. Right. Are in such quantities, stunning, staggering quantities because they have access to, they control two shipping ports, major shipping ports through which all kinds of products come. But through those ports, they can get chemical ingredients to make all the drugs they'd ever want, methamphetamine and fentanyl. And they are very adept at smuggling. And we have a free trade agreement with Mexico and a 2,000 mile border. Most of this is not, by the way, it's very important to understand, most of this is not coming on the backs of people. It's coming in trucks through with other products. And it's just coming through in staggering quantities because that's how much they can make down there and they are making. And so they have covered the entire United States. This is an unprecedented thing. When I read your book, Sam, I was astonished on how well and how well run of a business this truly is. The marketing, the planning of standing outside of all of these clinics, they were salaried employees that you could consider them now Uber drivers at this point. The amount of just thought and the process behind how these drugs got into our country then and looking at it now, you're exactly I think right. That, that from dreamland to the least of us, that has reached an entirely different level beyond the, the reach of the guys that I wrote about in dreamland from this one town in Mexico who had this system, this retail system of selling retail amounts of black tar heroin, like pizzas, basically essentially similar to a pizza delivery system with an operator dispatching a driver to go give you your heroin, that kind of thing. And that system from this one village, that system, they had, they'd spread it to 25, I think 25 states is what I eventually counted. And certainly Ohio was a big one, was one of the most important because they came to, they came first to Columbus in 1998. They realized they, one guy in particular understood that by coming to Columbus and seeing the pills, seeing Oxycontin, which he'd never seen before, he began to think, if I just follow the pills, these new opioid things that these doctors are so aggressively prescribing, I'm going to have a heroin market before too long. And that was really the thinking of those guys for a long time, that you just follow the pills. So you go to Nashville and Indianapolis and Charlotte and South Carolina, Lexington, Cincinnati, Kentucky, Louisville, et cetera, all these different places. You're going to have brand new markets. You don't have to use a gun at all. It's brand new. There's no competition. What ends up happening, though, is that with the changes in the trafficking world down in Mexico and the move away from poppies and away from marijuana and all that towards meth and fentanyl. It's an explosion. Now there's the people, the guys that I wrote about in dreamland almost don't matter anymore. They're there. They're still working, but they're, they don't really matter because now they were big fish in a small pond. And now that pond is an ocean and they're just the small fish. They always really were. And now the pond is enormous. Everybody's involved up here as well as down there. And you get to just a, a, a geometrically expanded market. The problem is, of course, that these drugs are devastating in two ways. Fentanyl, of course, is deadly, the deadliest drug we've ever seen. Methamphetamine is now, I think what's happening is that it's now made in such a pure, potent way that it is creating, the human brain cannot handle how potent it is. 
and it's created psychosis, symptoms of schizophrenia, and in time homelessness and tent encampments go along with this wherever it goes. And now, as I say, it's all the way up into New England, which was never had any meth to speak of. Vermont, Massachusetts, they never had any methamphetamine. Got rid of all those little shaken bakers that you had in Ohio and Indiana and various places. Those guys making meth in their chunk of their car in a motel or in a barn. Those guys don't exist. They were outcompeted, like what Walmart did to Main Street. That's what this meth did to all those little shaken bakers that you might remember from eight, 10 years ago that were exploding labs. And that's why you can't buy Sudafed pills over the counter anymore. You got to have a lock and key and all that. However, I would say this, and that's the, this is the focus of, of my latest book, The Least of Us. What I began to do, that's a very dire scenario I just painted. And it is, I'm not, I don't like blink in these things is you got to write what's necessary. You got to write what's true. I would, however, what one of the things that really, and this is what brought me back to Portsmouth. One of the ideas that I had was, I believe we got into this because we were looking for magic answers. But what's the answer to complicated problems? What's the complicated problem? Human pain derived from the central nervous system. What's the magic answer? One kind of pill, one kind of drug for every single human being out there. That doesn't work, didn't work. What I believe is necessary is really is focusing on the small steps, the small steps towards economic development, towards towards community strengthening and repair. And that's why I used Portsmouth as the for the last chapter of my book, because I believe that is what's going on in Portsmouth. It is not sexy. It's not blowing the hinges off everything and the roof up. It's not solving every problem. It's a bunch of people like Dale, Tim Wolf, and all these diff- different folks that are out there coming together, finding, using their own energies, their own desires, and their own talents to mix a gradual movement towards something better. It does not change the fact that there are lots of drugs in Portsmouth. It does not change the fact that there's not a whole lot of really well-paying jobs in Portsmouth. It's just as simply adding a narrative. And so you see Dale with, I can't remember, three, four businesses, one of which very importantly, and these are all small businesses, like the days are over when, like in the heyday of Portsmouth, they'd have a factory open, 250 jobs, they'd splash it all over the headlines. Oh, isn't this great? Those days are over. Any factory that comes up is going to be mostly robots anyway. And so it's the small stuff where you're hiring, you've got you and three employees or two employees, you and five employees using that raw material, with the, which is a recovering addict. The recovering addict is very much like fossil fuel. You had decay, from decay comes energy. A person who's like energetic now, instead of looking to rip off the copper wire and all that stuff, you know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. you've got four CrossFits. Last I saw, there were four yeah. CrossFits. That is the very symbol of community rebirth, right? People working out together, not alone, together, no. doing the jump rope and doing not the weights. Hiding. Not hiding. No, no. Showing and up. and Showing many, many people actively, a recovery community, people in 12-step meetings, all these kinds of things. Dale's part of that essential kind of synergy, that, that fusion of energies. Yes. That I think is the idea behind, is really the idea behind my latest book, which is to say, that is through community rebirth and repair and strengthening, which we've done so much to shred. In the last 40 years, we have shredded community in a million ways. We could go on and on talking about how we've done that. But to my way of thinking, these epidemics of addiction, pain pills, heroin, now fentanyl and meth, et cetera, et cetera, combined with all the other addictive stuff that's out there, 
right? That's legal. Pornography, yeah. gambling, video games, social media, sugar, fast food, et cetera, et cetera. All of that stuff is like arrayed against us. What is our defense against yeah. fentanyl, against sugar? Yeah against yeah. pornography. It's finding common ground with people building together. And when you do that, you begin to see that solutions become more possible than yeah. they were when you were all alone working, trying to figure out, gee, how do I solve this? And it's also saying we have this, for example, this horrible problem with foster children and too many foster kids and all that. How do we solve the foster children system? Maybe the best way to do it is think about as I say, as a church, maybe you take one foster kid or two, one at a time, small scale stuff, working towards them larger scale and uh, solutions. And to me, Portsmouth today manifested that self, that stuff so clearly. And that's yeah. why I went back to Portsmouth and did my last chapter in the book on that specifically. It's interesting because all these things that you're talking about, there's just so much hope in hearing you say that. And I want to commend you because even going back to that platform and you saying just the five families that would speak to you now and bringing Dale back into giving him credit, there's lots of people in my hometown, but because I just interviewed him, I think it's important to point out he was just on the Kelly Clarkson show. He is bringing a new spotlight and they're trying to shop a hometown movie to look at and honor what has happened in the Portsmouth, Ohio area. And your new book, The Least of Us, you said you dedicated that to Portsmouth and you're bringing this sort of community. When I talk about, and we, when we first, you and I just got on Zoom, and I was talking about my people. I left Portsmouth in 2000 and actually 1999 when I left for college. I did go back there, work several years for a pharmaceutical company. And then I, Cincinnati is now my home. But it's interesting because I still say back home or my people and even my children say, mom, back home, we're our home. Cincinnati is home to them and to us. But that sense of community, that's something that I want for my own kids. Sure. And it Everybody be, does. Yes. And it everybody does. You can't duplicate that. You can't duplicate what sort of that sense of what you're talking about enmeshment and people and community and what happens in those sort of environments. It can't be duplicated unless people really do put themselves out there and allow right. that to happen. What I think needs to happen is you need what used to happen very naturally. And when I was growing up in Southern California, we never were indoors. I mean, it had to be pouring rain. For us to be indoors. It was great weather. By 3.30, 4 o'clock every afternoon, there'd be clumps of kids and the park was packed. Now right. that same street completely empty. The park, I don't even know why they maintain it anymore because there's nobody ever uses it. what we need to do. And I think this is really getting back to this whole idea of trying the small stuff is you, we need to be intentional about stuff, right? We need to say, we are going to plan a barbecue, a, a block party, we're going to do this, we're going to do, th and we're going to work at it until it becomes part of almost second nature. Because here's the thing, what you were saying, everybody wants that. Everybody in America wants that. They ju We've just lost practice. Yeah. used to be that you knew to come home when the streetlights went on, but now nobody's outside and all the kids are like afraid to go outside. First of all, they're like attached to their screens, but also nobody else is outside. So why should I go outside? Why should I go out to play when nobody else is out there too? 
And so I think it's, we really need to be intentional. You need to plan these things. And I think that's a little bit what's going on in, in Portsmouth. I went back to Portsmouth for just before Christmas, 2018, because they had set up an enormous uh, temporary ice skating rink. And I yes. just wanted to write about, yes. right, exactly. That's yeah. part of the book. That's part of the last chapter of my latest book, because I wanted to see a community doing the small stuff. That's a small thing, but it yes. actually helps bring people out of their shell. and bring... Now, COVID was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster because it cut back on all of that. And it at the very time when the trafficking world out of Mexico had succeeded in covering the country with these two extraordinarily toxic, damaging drugs. So we need to build our way back out of that now that COVID is, seems to be in retreat to some degree. And that means just getting out there more, getting out and being around other people more, not accepting that it's a good idea just to be alone in your house all the time. And that is really the beginnings of the solutions, plural, to this whole problem. But again, that's why I went back to Portsmouth. I think what's happening there is fascinating, is so exciting. It's a great American story. It's just not magical. There's no like, there's silver, silver bullet, magic wand. It takes a long time and it's small steps. And you wouldn't see it if you don't know don't have some historical perspective to compare it to three years ago, eight years ago, 20 years ago. You know what I mean? That All of that to me is really the essential part uh, of all this. That, and that was the idea behind, the idea was uh, the title, The Least of Us. Uh, I'm not a, a Christian, but I was reading the Bible during writing this book, almost like as a guide, trying to find a guide for how the book might read. And it came upon Book of Matthew, that what you do for the least of these, my brethren, you do for to me. And that's what Jesus said. And I thought to myself, yes, that's part of it. It's this idea that we are only as strong as the most vulnerable, only as strong as the least of us. But I also thought of it in terms of the least little effort, the least, the smallest, unnoticed, least sexy effort towards building a community is where we have to be focused now, not thinking that there's no, as Dale said, and it has, I think it is painted on his wall somewhere, uh, which says, uh, nobody's coming. I thought that was brilliant. I put that in the book. Nobody's coming. It's just up to you. Yeah. It's just up to you. And I think that's a very healthy attitude to take. No one's going to come in and step in and do it for you. It's, but the truth is, there's so much dormant talent and energy in most American towns that it, you don't need, I don't think you probably need much more than that. Sure, you need some funding. Sure, you need this, that. You need some grants here and there. You need the colleges and the universities to step up. Churches never definitely have a huge role to play in all this. But that's you've got that. And so that's possible. You just have to readjust. You got you get used to the small steps. Yes. And not expect, not be discouraged when you have not solved all the world's problems. That's well, everybody thing. loves a good comeback story. Who oh, yeah. Love a good comeback story. I think. That's part of it. That's part of the, when you were talking about what's happening in Portsmouth, it's fascinating. I totally agree with you. I'm at the edge of my seat wondering what does the, what does my hometown look like in 20 years from now when yeah. I want to actually go back and drive through downtown again, as opposed to taking the new bypass just to get to my grandmother's 
to visit right. her and then leave. I want to know what that looks like. Me too. So is that book number three? What's in for you? <laughs> I'm I'm pretty exhausted right now. I'm not sure I'm thinking about any book. I'm thinking more about like taking a nap, honestly, God. But to me, that's this is the thing about this topic. I thought when I started Dreamland that I was writing a crime story, like a story about heroin promotion, heroin, heroin marketing, and prescription pain pill marketing. And that's certainly part of the story. But as time went on, I began to realize this is really about America. This You could go on forever. This is, allows you opportunities to write Ameri about America in very broad ways, like economic development or devastation, community sol solidarity or fragmentation. All of this can be written about from the perspective of our addiction issues that we've been wrangling with in, in unprecedented ways since the late 90s. It's so interesting, Sam, because I've interviewed quite a few people. I recently ran for state legislature here in Ohio in the Cincinnati Hamilton County area, wanting to make a difference. That's what it's all about is stepping into the uncomfortable, to try to make just small steps, whether it's legislation or whatever it may be. And it's interesting because when you're talking about the isolation, and where we've come, just everyone so far from that community perspective or the villages, now we we only take care of our own. I think from a hope perspective, with you giving everyone the platform and these families to start talking about that and taking these small steps that maybe that next book, when you go back to Portsmouth, you see that <laughs> community and you see that sense of people stepping out and really embracing other people. The overlying tone that I think all of us have heard within the last several years, at least, is divisive. And that's yeah. the word that I've gotten over and over, especially dabbling in the political scene here without within the last couple of years, divisive. And I can't get past this human perspective that we all have to have is that there is still a sense of community. We all have a broader base, a broader sort of vision. We all are Americans and we have this problem and in fighting each other, we yeah. have to embrace each but other. See, all of this is the dope talking. Okay. If you listen to CNN or Fox, what are the overriding themes, messages of CNN and Fox News? Everybody's too divided. There's no real solution, except for if those other people would just think better, if they would be better human beings. And that's the fundamental idea, which is the fundamental message of Fox News and CNN is you're right. Not that they're wrong, but they're bad. You're right. They're bad. But if you get down onto the ground and you get away from some of these more toxic issues that Fox News and CNN tend to prey on. Mm -hmm. And you, we all know what they are. If you get away from that stuff and get back to like basic kind of common sense ideas about what we need, what, if we want more people to come downtown, we need to beautify downtown. So let's all get together and paint the curbs, which is what they did in Portsmouth. Yeah. Let's bring people downtown to skate, which hasn't happened in, in, in four decades. People don't know how to skate, ice skate anymore in Portsmouth. They used to. The city used to spray water on a park and it would freeze and they go skate. Now yeah. you go people, there's five people know how to skate. Everybody else is falling on their butts all the time. That's okay. That's okay. That's the way it should be. That's fine. Not a problem. You learn how to skate again. That's fine. A whole generation learns how to skate. That's good. But it's like that small stuff takes you away from the big issues that seem to be, we stopped 
with cable TV news in my household. We don't have it. Okay. Cause it is toxic beyond words. And I urge everybody to say no more cable TV news. You're not getting any news. You're just getting made mad, made alarmed. They're pushing your alarm button. Those people are, you're right. They're bad. You're right. They're bad. And you wonder why our anxiety and our addictions are so prevalent. If you turn on the news, you immediately get right. anxiety and fear and division thrown yeah. right in your face. And I think when you get down onto the left, burns away all that stuff, all the local level. You burns away all that nastiness on Twitter and the cable TV news networks and other websites and so on. Just get back to people. Hey, how you doing? Seeing somebody in a cafe. Now that you can actually go to a cafe and see people. Right. right. And see people right. and hang out with people the way you do, used to do at Dreamland Pool, which right. you haven't been able to really to do in any meaningful way until these cafes start up. So all of this to me means is showing us that the way for the, the, these epidemics are showing us the way forward to much deeper problems that the, the, that, that afflict us. And that's again, not just addiction, which is pretty damn bad, not just mental illness, which is so bad, but also loneliness. Depression, fragmentation, isolation, et cetera, et cetera. Connection. Connection. Uh, yes, it's and it, and you can do that in small ways, and it's the small ways that in fact lead to greater, more healthy solutions that don't come accompanied unintended consequences of the kind we're now we're still living with from all those bizarre decisions and, and policies and culture that we had during the opioid, uh, the hot height of the opioid pain pill prescribing. If there's one thing that addiction doesn't know, it doesn't matter where you live, how much money you make, what the color of your skin is, whether you're political, <laughs> Republican, Democrat, it, it doesn't matter. Male, female, yeah. addiction, right. it's something that can touch every single one of us. And it's something sure. that as a parent, when I was thinking about interviewing you, I was thinking, oh my goodness, I feel so grateful that I came from Portsmouth, Ohio. I'm really proud of that. And I made it out is what we say, because I moved on <laughs> one get I, it's terrible to say, but it, it's the gift that my parents, why they showed up every single day for 30 plus years to the uranium enrichment corporation in Piketon. It was the gift that they gave myself and my sisters to get out of the small town and go make something of yourself. That was the gift they gave me. I am forever grateful for that. That's also the gift I'm trying to give my own children. And it's also the reality that it doesn't matter. You don't have to live in a town like Portsmouth, Ohio. I live in a suburb, a village of Cincinnati. And it's something that I am nervous and scared about and fearful of my own children because fentanyl is so prevalent. Methamphetamine yes. is so prevalent. And I worry about what that looks like for my own children. And, and I, I think that that's essential to what, because fentanyl is everywhere, because methamphetamine is so damaging to people's brains. That's why these kinds of like small local neighborhood-based, park-based, church-based, business-based, whatever efforts are so important. It's yeah. really like an essential thing now. We got to be doing this because being alone is falling prey to not just Fox News or CNN, but fentanyl and meth, which is simply, in my view, I kind of view Fox News, CNN, and way out here on the AX spectrum, you've got Fentanyl and methamphetamine, they're all part of the same continuum. But let me leave you th with this, Lindsay. One of the great moments of my writing Dreamland, I heard about Dreamland, this pool, and I didn't know anything about it. And I was thinking, I got to find out more about it. So I go, I was a member of a Facebook group called You're from Portsmouth If, 
dot, 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 right? And I was by then a member of it. And so I write this post on that Facebook page. Hey, I heard you all heard this pool called Dreamland. I was wondering if you could let me know any Marie's and that kind of thing. Oh my God, three days. It never stopped coming. Posts that were like this long. I lost my virginity. It's Dreamland pool. I yeah. remember the French fries. Yeah. A&W. I remember this, the radio jingle, time to turn so you won't burn. The radio station knew most of its le- re- listeners were at the swimming pool. So every half hour, they'd say, you got to turn over. You're going to burn because That's they what? knew everyone, everyone was there. It was just a powerful thing. I I was afraid they were going to take it down. So I like copy the whole thing, put it in a separate file. And it was a beautiful reflection and mirror almost to how people had viewed how they grew up, why everybody wants this local community connection and participation, because it means something to us all. We grew, we evolved as human beings to not think it was a good thing. It is a good thing, but not just that, to think it, to know that it was an essential thing. It's essential to why we survived human connection and community. It's just that in America in the last 40 years, we have decided we don't need this. We're prosperous enough. We don't need other people. Other people give us a pain in the neck. Oh, they're hard to deal with. They don't vote like we don't belong to the same church, et cetera, et cetera. million reasons why it, we don't want to be around other people. And now we can be isolated. And that is a, we are being killed off by our own prosperity. The ability to be able to function alone is not a good thing. No, I agree with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so grateful to have this these moments with you and for giving this spotlight and this platform to so many other people who their families have either they've lost family members or loved ones to addiction and to the people of Portsmouth, Ohio, and to all the small towns and communities out there for people who are currently struggling. We all are just really grateful for people like you who step out there, take these moments and make them bigger for all of us. Thank you, Sam. Oh, it's my pleasure, Lindsay. Good luck with your podcast. Great to be with you. Thank you. And good luck on that third book. All right, then. Thanks a lot. See you. God bless. Bye-bye. High Heels and Politics is produced by Marianne Christie and Ryan Kulik. Engineered by Ryan Kulik. Music by Sherrod Sate. Subscribe to High Heels and Politics on Google, Apple, Spotify, and all of your podcast networks.